James chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 13 to 18 this morning. Who is wise and understanding? That's, that's the question of the day. Who is wise and understanding? And James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will give us God's answer to that question. But let's read it together, beginning in verse 13, and then pray. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, I pray that you would build this wisdom into us and that we would not be like the foolish man who looks in a mirror and goes away without change, but we would look into this perfect word and persevere and go away being doers of the word and thereby reflecting the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. He's not being very wise. He's being foolish, shouts my son Levi. Yeah, he's not being very wise. He's being foolish, repeats my son Luke as we're driving down the highway. I didn't know what they were talking about at first until... A motorcyclist passes by. Why is he not being wise, I ask? To which they respond, because he's not wearing a helmet. Based on what they were taught, and based on their own face-to-face encounters with concrete, my boys were able to discern the motorcyclist's foolishness. People have a desire to be wise. People will often talk about an unwise financial decision or an unwise decision at work or an unwise use of their time. Not too many people want to be known for foolishness. But people also have various criteria by which they judge what is wise. Based on our upbringing... Uh, based on our culture around us, uh, based on our personal desires or those who have taught us, we have criteria by which we judge what's wise. The problem, however, is that our criteria for discerning what is truly wise is all out of whack because of sin. Our homes are broken. Our culture is rebellious. Our personal desires are wayward. 
Our teachers are imperfect, and that means our understanding of true wisdom is greatly lacking. The Bible's answer is that wisdom must come from outside of us. True wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord and a love for His Word. James is saying something similar for the church. He's, he's teaching the whole church what true wisdom looks like. He, he's building into us a criteria by which we measure true wisdom in order that we might pursue it more wholeheartedly. The main question he seeks to answer in verse 13 is this, who is wise and understanding among you? When we covered chapter 1, verse 5, we we developed from James and his use of wisdom, we we developed a definition of of wisdom. Wisdom is the God-given ability to act and speak according to God's Word and thereby reflect God's character in every situation. Wisdom is the God-given ability to act and speak according to God's Word and thereby reflect God's character in every situation. Who is wise among you? He also says who is wise in understanding. The other, the wor- the other word that he used, this understanding, it carries a similar meaning. It's not that you're just knowledgeable about a particular subject. It has more to do with that knowledge being exercised from day to day. We actually find this same pair of words, wisdom and understanding, applied to the leaders in Israel and to the whole nation of Israel several times in the Old Testament. Their knowledge of God's law was supposed to transform the way they lived from day to day. So as to leave an impression on the surrounding nations for God's glory. If you didn't live out what you knew to be true from God's law, then you really didn't understand it. True understanding of God's word was demonstrated through action, through their relationships with one another, which, which means that when James asks us, who is wise and understanding among you, we, we cannot think in terms merely of who knows the most. Who has the most Scripture memorized? Who is the oldest? Who is the smartest? Who's been to seminary? No true wisdom and understanding has a moral and ethical component to it, especially in how it affects our relationships with other people, our interactions with them. It's very practical. He makes this even clearer as he tells us what the wise person looks like in comparison to the one who just thinks he's wise. Uh, He introduces us first to the wise person in verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James has given a great deal of attention to faith being demonstrated in works. He's saying the same is is true for wisdom. True wisdom will demonstrate itself in good works. And not just, not works to earn favor with God, 
but, but works that, are, that flow out of a relationship with God that's already established by grace. True wisdom will produce good conduct evidenced in works. Just as I mentioned with, with Israel and their leaders, the one who is truly wise will leave an impression on others for God's glory. People will recognize that life as one that's devoted to the glory of God. But notice that such a, pers- such a wise person will also do the works with meekness. One dictionary describes meekness as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. When true wisdom produces works, the person doesn't act in order to be seen by others. You know, the wise person isn't saying to himself, hey, I'm going to show everybody how humble I am by doing good deeds. No, the wise person isn't even aware that he's serving others. He's not taking notes in in himself. He's not taking notes on how committed he is and how great that work really was. He's totally other-oriented and self-forgetting. His meekness suffocates all desires to be noticed and praised by man. He knows his reward is with God. And this is a real test for us, isn't it? How long can you serve others without compliments? How many tasks do you perform where where there's some desire for someone to recognize them, for for someone to, to praise you for them? Or is there ever a time when when you've been serving a a, a lot while others might be doing very little and you begin to have thoughts about how much more you do and how much better of a Christian you are? Perhaps perhaps you even begin to to pick apart another person's character in your mind in order to prove to yourself why you deserve that position instead of him. And such an attitude reveals a lack of the true wisdom James is talking about. And, and apparently some, uh, even in the church, are lacking this, this meekness-producing wisdom. Uh, we're introduced to this person in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Meaning, don't boast as being wise when the truth shows that you're proud. True wisdom produces humility, meekness, self-denial, other-orientedness, not not jealousy and selfish ambition. And this is where James begins to develop the nature of true wisdom. Uh, Sometimes we gain a a deeper appreciation of, of what's good only when we compare it to what's bad. Okay, the, the, the lines become sharper, the color becomes more vibrant, the, the picture becomes clearer. In this case, James holds up two kinds of wisdom before us. A, a false wisdom, it's not really wisdom at all, but, but this false wisdom. And then he holds up true wisdom. 
And he's going to compare them in three ways. He's going to answer these questions about all three of them. Where it comes from, what's it like, and how does it affect others? Where does it come from, what's it like, and how does it affect others? So he starts by developing the nature of false wisdom. He shows it where it comes from in verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. James says that it's earthly. That's, that's not a knock against the goodness of God's created order. Rather, it has to do with, with all that's warped by sin and untouched by grace. Uh, Paul even gives us a list of things that are earthly in, in Colossians 3. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. It, it's not of the realm where, where God dwells in, in, in holiness, in other words. It's, it's from the realm of self-centered gratification. It's earthly. He also says that it's unspiritual. To be unspiritual refers to our natural fallen condition, untouched by the Holy Spirit's saving activity. Paul uses the same word for the person who, who doesn't accept the things of God, uh, the things of the Spirit of God uh, in 1 Corinthians 2. He is the natural man, the, the unspiritual man. False wisdom comes from the unredeemed fleshly nature. And even worse, he also says that it's demonic. It's like when Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your things, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, the things that come from God, but on the things of man. It is demonic. Basically, James says that false wisdom originates with the world, the flesh, and the devil. What's it like, though? What, what characterizes it? I mean, how can you discern it when, it, when it's present in your, in your own life? Well, James says that, that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition characterize false wisdom. These two are the opposite of the Christian life. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Bitter jealousy. It's that resentment that we experience when another person enjoys more success than we are. And oh, how many different ways it can express itself. Uh, you might resent that other people get chosen for a task that, that you wanted. You, you might resent someone else's gifts or their competency in a, in, a, in a certain field. Maybe you resent that another church has something that we don't. Maybe you resent someone else's marriage. Maybe, maybe you resent that someone else got pregnant instead of you. Or someone else is more healthy than you. 
where someone else is so glad all the time about life. You, you resent it. There's this jealousy. Jealousy also rears its ugly head when we, we, feel, uneas- when we feel easily threatened by other people and their, their criticisms. Perhaps we experience jealousy when we're overlooked and others are praised for things that we did, we helped with. This kind of jealousy, it goes hand in hand with with selfish ambition. It, It really exposes why we're doing what we're doing, doesn't it? Selfish ambition is the opposite of of the self-denial that Jesus calls us to. It it has to do with with measuring everything in life by the way it will will affect me, myself, and I. It's very self-calculating in all of its decisions. You know, someone asks you to do something and and your mind just starts reeling with, well, I'm going to have to not do that and that and that. Everything becomes about how much it's inconveniencing this comfort or that comfort in your life. It's the inward desire that seeks to promote self in front of others and to protect self when put down by others. It's it's life that's really lived for self-glory instead of God's glory. And wherever these two characteristics are, are present in our hearts, remember the heart is the causal core of your personhood. It's leading you to do what you do in life. When these things are in our hearts, James says that the result will be disorder and every vile practice. That's how it affects others. Disorder and every vile practice. When people seek their own glory, it inevitably leads to disorder and evil. I just, just read the Bible, right? He's, he, Satan wants glory for himself and causes disorder among angels. Adam and Eve want to take God's place in determining good and evil, and it causes disorder. Cain gets jealous of his brother's sacrifice and murders his brother, Abel. Absalom wants his father's throne and sweeps Israel into chaos. The church in Corinth starts boasting in various leaders, right? I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. And what does it cause? Disunity in the church. We know this disorder. We, we see this disorder in the world all the time. We've, we've seen all kinds of disorder with the elections. We continue to witness disorder and evil practices in the civil courts, which often fail to uphold justice. Maybe you've experienced disorder in your home or in your marriage this week. Maybe you're in in your extended family. All of that disorder comes from below, and it's the result of selfish passions in the heart vying for its own way. Uh, We'll get to this next week, but in chapter 4, verse 1, he asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This is the result of false wisdom. But there is an alternative. James now holds the, the nature of true wisdom 
And he answers the same three questions. First, he answers where it's from. He says in verse 17 that true wisdom is from above. Where have we seen that before in James? Say it out loud. Where? It's in chapter 1. Every good gift. Thanks. Yeah, every good gift. Chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is where? From above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's from God. Jesus uses this uh, same word to speak of the new birth in John's Gospel. You must be born again, Nicodemus. Literally, born from above. In other words, true wisdom cannot be gained simply by life experiences. True wisdom cannot be gained simply through study in an academic setting. True wisdom cannot be gained simply with time. It must first be given from above. Through the new birth, through the gift of a new heart, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's grace must give this wisdom that James is talking about. The the Spirit makes a person truly wise. And and what's his wisdom like? What's the Spirit's wisdom like? Well, first of all, James says in verse 17 that it's pure. Uh, One of James's main points has been that we keep ourselves unstained from the world. We don't don't participate in uh, in the world's moral rebellion. Whether that's in the the area of of, uh, money or food or sex or vocation, the wisdom from above is morally pure. It's free from all the earthly appetites that contradict God's will. The wisdom from above is also peaceable. Peaceable. Some translations have peace-loving. It's conducive to harmonious relationships. You know, some people are experts in causing strife. They feed off of sarcasm and, and personal jabs. And this is the opposite. And we have some brothers and sisters in this congregation who are strong in this area, they they can patiently walk people toward a charitable understanding of of the other person and toward a peaceful resolve in the Lord. True wisdom is also gentle. Gentle. This word means that it doesn't insist on its own rights. Uh, It makes allowances when the circumstances would suggest to the world that you ought to, act, you ought to react harshly. You, you should put your foot down. You should prove your point. Even in the face of suffering, this gentleness that he's talking about, it doesn't become so preoccupied with its own agenda and its own comforts that it retaliates in order to have them. 
One study puts it this way, that gentleness is a, is a humble, patient steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred or malice, trusting God in spite of it all. I think the days ahead will be tougher for Christians in this country, and and we'll need to take stands on issues that will make the offense of the cross crystal clear to the world but oh, for there to be a gentleness about us when we do it. This gentleness here. Not to be gentle is not to be wise. Next, true wisdom is also, the ESV translates it, open to reason. Open to reason. But other translations, like the NIV, um, they have submissive. Uh, Another one had obedient and that seems closer to the mark. The, the Greek word doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture, uh, but several of its cognates do in other sources. And they are used in the sense of ready obedience to, the, to God's Word. Ready obedience to God's Word. And that seems to fit James's letter. Uh, we're supposed to be quick to hear the Word. Chapter 1, verse 19 uh, We're supposed to be a people receiving the word with meekness, chapter 1, verse 21. And we're also to be doers of that word, chapter 1, verse 22. So so true wisdom is characterized by the the humble desire to conform our lives to the will of God in Scripture. It's obedient. And even if you choose the translation, open to reason, it seems best to take it in the sense of of this, of, of, of a humble readiness to stand corrected for the sake of God's Word. Meaning you're going to have a spirit about you where you're going to listen to your brother and you're going to listen to your sister when they bring their criticisms to the table. You're going to reason with them for the sake of God's Word and upholding its truth. True wisdom is also full of mercy and good fruits. Apart from grace, Paul says that that we're full of all manner of unrighteousness. That's what we're really full of, apart from grace. But James says that, that one with wisdom will be full of mercy. Mercy is kindness in action. It's kindness expressed to others in, in need It's not just filling pity for someone in need, but but actually acting to meet the needs of that someone. And and this seems to be why James ties it so closely to being full of good fruits. Uh, Good fruits seem to be the good deeds that, that must occur in loving your neighbor. Love without limits, as Wes taught us a couple of weeks ago from the parable of the Good Samaritan. This, this is what he's getting at here, and you can see why, because one of the things he addressed in chapter 2 was, was people not showing much mercy to the poor. Here, though, James says the wise person will be full of mercy and good fruits. But finally, James says that truism is impartial and sincere. These two words, they complement one another. 
Uh, and that's better seen in translating the, the first one as unwavering. Unwavering. It's the opposite of the doubting and the double-minded person that we've seen elsewhere in James, the one who is who's constantly wavering in his loyalty to God. He has one step, one, one, one foot in the kingdom and one foot out. And, and, this, and then the second word, sincere, it basically means without hypocrisy. So, so birth words are together uh, getting at this one thing. Wisdom resolves to live in single-minded devotion to the glory of God and love of neighbor. Single-minded devotion is what he's after here. To the glory of God and the love of neighbor. So those are his characteristics. Those are the things that, that fill the heart of the wise man, the wise woman. Now what about its results? How does it affect others? Verse 18 goes on, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When you hear the word peace, a lot of times what we think of is the absence of strife, the absence of war, the absence of conflict. But the Bible's presentation of peace is much more robust. Peace has more to do with the presence of God blessing the world with His perfect rule. It has to do with wholeness, where everything in the world is put in its proper order in submission to God's rule. And this is what the wise person longs for and and is working toward in his relationship with others. You know, others can can look into his or her life and, and they can see glimpses of the peace that's coming with the new heavens and the new earth. They can look into the wise man's life and they can get a glimpse of of heaven and what it's about. And the result of this peacemaking labor, it says, is a harvest of righteousness. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, we were told that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now James is telling us what does produce the righteousness of God. Sowing seeds of righteousness in peace so that it produces a harvest of righteousness in the lives of others. That that happens primarily through us preaching the gospel to ourselves and to others. We plant the gospel seed, others water it, and God causes the growth. So, so So that instead of disorder... And every vile practice, the the wise person's life brings peace and righteousness with it. What a beautiful alternative to the false wisdom. True wisdom comes from a beautiful place and leads to a beautiful life with beautiful results. And of course, James's goal in all this is, is to build into the church a love for this kind of wisdom. And, and where it's lacking, James is, is urging us, he's commanding us to grow into this true wisdom. Why? Because to grow into this true wisdom is to grow into the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pretend for a moment that James is a sketch artist. 
And James has invited us into the room to see what he is drawing. And this whole time we've been looking over James's shoulder as he's sketching a portrait of a person with true wisdom. And this, this whole time we see the pieces coming together. The, he, he first sketches the dark realities of false wisdom around the border of the page. But in the, in the middle of this portrait is glowing brightness. He sketches in purity and peace. He sketches in gentleness and obedience. He switches pencils and and, and sketches in mercy and good fruits and an unwavering devotion to God's will. And piece by piece, we've watched him sketch and now the picture is complete and we stand back and look. And what else do we see? We see Jesus. We see the person of Jesus. The Apostle John says that Jesus is pure. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. The writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every, though, in, in every way, though without sin, he is pure. Also, Jesus wasn't simply peaceable. He could say, peace, be still, and the storm would calm. Or peace, I I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. 2 Corinthians 10.1 says that Jesus is also meek and gentle. Jesus himself says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you want to know where I got the definition of gentleness, being able to bear up in the face of injustice without retaliation, it's from the person of Jesus and the way these things are used of Him. Then all throughout the Gospels, What does Jesus do? He he lives a life of ready obedience to His Father's will. Even in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, He shows unwavering devotion to God. Not my will, but yours be done. And Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbly obeyed even to the point of death on a cross. Hebrews 2.17 says that this qualifies Jesus to be a faithful and merciful high priest. A merciful. He has mercy. He's full of mercy. John 12, 24 says that Jesus' death produced fruit. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about his own death. And it's the fruit of the nations being saved by his death and resurrection. It's the fruit of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation being ransomed for God. Jesus is full of mercy and good fruits. And another fruit of his life, death and resurrection, is our peace with God and our peace with one another. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Ephesians 2 tells us about this. And his work has also assured a harvest of righteousness in his people. 
Revelation 19 even pictures the church sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it's granted to the church to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of true wisdom. Everything Jesus does in His life and ministry is the way of wisdom itself. It's more glorious than what Solomon was able to express, Luke eleven thirty one 31 tells us. In Jesus, Colossians 2, 3 says, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that through His cross and resurrection, Jesus becomes our wisdom and power for salvation. Jesus became wisdom from God in the flesh to save us from all of our foolishness in the flesh. And now James is urging us into true wisdom and by doing so, urging us into Christ. Because Christ is from above and Christ is beautiful and Christ will produce a harvest of righteousness. He is our only hope for wisdom. But you must be united to Him first. You must be united to Him first. That happens by putting your faith in Him. It happens by trusting His Word every day and relying on Him alone to rescue you. You cannot become wise and understanding on your own. It must be given to you from above. It comes alone through Christ our Savior, conversion by the Spirit, and communion with God. Christ is our Savior. We just saw He became wisdom for our salvation. But you won't know that wisdom truly until you're converted, until God gives you a new heart. This is chapter 1, verse 18, all over again. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Wisdom comes from above because the new birth is from above. We must have Christ. And in order to have Christ, we must be converted, born again. God does this when you hear the word of truth and believe So don't ignore these words this morning. Believe them. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will know true wisdom because then you will know God. And then grow into that wisdom through communion with God. Christ is our Savior. We're converted by the Spirit. And then we grow into this wisdom through communion with God. James has laid out two very practical parts of communion with God already in his letter, and it is the word and prayer. Chapter 1, verse 21 says, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And then chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to you. So, So the word and prayer is how we commune with God and how we grow gradually as Christians, into Christ-like wisdom. The word of the gospel is what changes the heart. James's focus is on changing the heart. 
That's why he said, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. It's the heart that must change, and the only thing that changes the heart is communion with God. It changes first through conversion. God must make us new. And then it changes through communion. We, we read the Word, we pray, and the Spirit progressively makes us more like Jesus. So devote yourself to the Word of God. Devote yourself to speaking that Word into each other's lives. This is where God's wisdom is revealed. And then pray to receive it. Our God is generous to give it. So what is the answer to James's question, who is wise and understanding among you? His answer is the person who walks in humility before God and devotes himself to all that pleases God in relation to others. But when we set his answer in the broader framework and context of the gospel of Jesus, we see that it's the person who imitates Jesus that is wise. The wise person carries a cross. Remember Stephen? We talked about this a while back. Stephen is noted as a man who is wise. And he was stoned to death. We also see the same wisdom in our Savior, don't we? He lived in ways that the world thought foolish. And they crucified him. The wise person carries a cross. But he only carries that cross because Jesus carried his first. We can deny ourselves in order to glorify God and love others because Jesus glorified God and loved others on our behalf. It's through the person of Jesus, through communion with Jesus, that will lead us to act like Jesus in relation to others. The Lord's Supper is a tangible reminder of our Savior's wisdom. The world concluded that Jesus' humiliation on the cross was foolish. But the resurrection of Jesus tells us otherwise. It truly is the wisdom of God for our salvation. It's where our sins were exchanged for His righteousness. So as you eat this morning and drink, remember Christ, who is our wisdom from God. Remember that His death has covered all of your foolishness. And then look with hope to that future day when, when He will come again and make you like Himself. And as a way of expressing our unity with one another as we come to the, the Lord's Supper, let's also read our church covenant together. But this time, I want you to read it in light of today's passage. And as a reminder, as another portrait of what the wise life looks like. So why don't we read it together now, and then Wes will come and, and lead us. So if you're a member here, why don't you join with me in reading our, our covenant. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, 
and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge and holiness, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. We also engage to maintain family and personal devotions, to educate our children in the Christian faith, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all gossip, backbiting, and excessive anger, to seek God's help in abstaining from practices that bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the guidelines of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage to encourage one another as we eagerly await the second coming of our glorious Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And should we move from this place, we will, if possible, unite with the church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant.